Rebekah from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. There was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace. He entrusted it to his officials and sent them to Ben-Hadad, son of Tabimon, Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you a gift of silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. He conquered, I think that says Ejon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Makkah, and all Kinnereth, in addition to Naphtali. When Baasha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and withdrew to Terzah. Then King Asa issued an order to all Judah. No one was exempt. And they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Baasha had been using there. With them, King Asa built up Geba in Benjamin and also Mizpah. As for all the other events of Asa's reign, all his achievements, all he did, and the cities he built... Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? In his old age, however, his feet became diseased. Then Asa rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of his father David. And Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king. Good morning. Um, thanks for having me here today. It's... Um Look, you're getting, you're getting repeats um, that I've been doing uh, in Ballina. Um, I haven't done up a fresh sermon for you, but uh, I picked this one a few weeks ago uh, when Les wanted it, said, you know, can we do a swap? And look, just going over it, it's been, you know, you, you preach these things and then you go, well, now I've got to preach it again. Do I believe it? Um, so... Yeah, it encouraged me when I... This, is, this, this, this passage particularly encouraged me as we've been going through 1 Kings. And um, I, I pray it's an encouragement uh, and, a, and a challenge to you today. So let's pray and see what God has to say to us through it. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, uh, that every single part of it uh, is good for us, is for our good. Um, and Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand this part of your word uh, that you might encourage us and challenge us and move us to where you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, I've... 
I used to these things. Um, I've seen a few photos uh, over my lifetime of my granddad, but I don't ever remember meeting him. Um, when I was in primary school, I lived in Western Queensland, uh, Charleville, um, and my granddad lived in Hillsville in Victoria, so a good two days drive away. And so it was, it was confusing um, more than sad when I learned that my granddad had taken his own life um, when I was in about year three. Uh, but over the years, I've, I've come to understand maybe why he did it. I can't prove it, you know, beyond all doubt. But from what I've learned, uh, he, he wasn't a Christian. He did believe, though, he did believe that there was a battle between good and evil. Um, he was the founder of a political group that believed that there were wicked people in this world that were trying to corrupt society. And from what I've heard, I think he became so convinced that evil was winning, that the darkness and the forces of this world are so powerful that really the battle is not worth fighting. And so this has been a pretty live question, I guess a background question in my life, growing up with that uh, sort of hanging over us, hanging over the family, was my granddad right? Was he right? Is there really a battle between good and evil in this life? And is evil actually winning? So I wonder if you, you can relate to that question today. I know some of you, from what I'm just hearing from the prayer time, been going through all sorts of dramas. Um, um, I wonder if you have that niggling fear that, look, all is lost, that the world really is getting worse and worse. So let's ask this question today. Is evil really winning? Or if, you, if I can ask this question maybe in a slightly different way, have you given in to the God of evil? I don't mean, are you a Satanist? I don't mean that. Do you worship Satan? Even though we heard some stuff about Halloween there. Um, uh, but as evil and as disaster become, have, have they become the biggest forces in your life? The things that you think just can't be overcome. What am I talking about? Well, as we look at this passage today, I'm hoping to look at under three points there in the outline there. First, I want to talk about the God of evil. Then I want to show how the problem is deeper than you think. And then finally... I want to get to think, talking about how the hope is also bigger than you think. The three things, the God of evil, the problem is deeper than you think, and the hope is bigger than you think. So let's get into it firstly. The God of evil. Have you given in to the God of evil? You know, a bit like my granddad, maybe you think evil has got this life all sewn up. It's in the bag. Maybe you've become cynical, Maybe you've become detached, depressed, fearful. Maybe you've just got into all sorts of addictions and, and, or uh, pleasure to try and hide from that. Because you know that none of us can ultimately outrun uh, this life, outrun our family, our upbringing, our environment, our education, our sin. Try as we might, we all know that the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree. And the God of evil, the presence of evil, is just too strong. You know, each, isn't each generation just progressively getting worse and worse? You know, what hope is there for our kids? 
Well, in the lead up to this passage today, you've come to this passage cold in 1 Kings. So, yeah, but I think there is still some truth to that. You see, it's, it's, it's not just that um, the northern king, there's two kingdoms kind of in, in 1 Kings. The northern kingdom has had no good kings. They're just sort of rotten from day one, from King Jeroboam onwards. Um, they're goners. But in today's passage, in chapter 15, we see this is the chosen line of David. These are supposedly the good guys. These are supposedly you know, the hope for humanity. And yet, from verses 1 to 9... And one to eight, we see that they progressively getting worse as well. Just there's no difference. It's depressing. And it looks like the God of evil is king. That despite all of God's grace to God's family, uh, to God's King David and his family line, it seems like it doesn't make one scrap of difference in their lives. And so as we get to verse nine in this chapter today. We should be feeling cynical. If you're not feeling cynical from life, you should be feeling cynical from the Bible. Here we go again. We should be covering our eyes. Look, ready to watch another train wreck in the story of God's people. After all, in verse 10, 10 we see that Asa has the same negative influence um, of Maka, daughter of Absalom, in his life. The author of Kings wants us to see that the same ingredients, the same influence that Asa has is the same as what his wicked father had and his father before him. In verse 2, we see that, um, it, back in verse 2, um, but if we, if we just stop there and at verse 10, we would, we would think that we know how this story is going. You know, how can a fourth generation kid somehow buck the trend and follow the Lord, make him number one in his life. Yeah, that just doesn't happen, does it? It doesn't happen. Well, this is awesome. That's why I love this passage um, when I've been going through Kings in the last, last term. Because against all our expectations, against all our worst fears, against bowing down to the God of evil, God's grace, I think we see, is unstoppable. How incredible is it from verse 11 to 15? Asa has the same wicked influences. He goes to the same wicked school, has the same wicked upbringing as his father. But in verse 11, we see that Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. And by father David, this is like five generations ago. It's not his immediate dad. In verses 12 and 13, he rebels against both his immediate fathers, you know, the closest fathers, and his grandmother's evil influence. In verse 12, we see that he expelled the male shrine prostitutes, the one that his father had brought in, and got rid of all the idols his fathers had made. But in verse 13, Asher is hardcore. He doesn't even turn a blind eye to his grandma. He deposes her from her position as queen mother because of her idolatry. Asa, by God's grace, has no respect for any of the false gods of the nations or that, they've, that their people have brought in. In verse 13, he cuts down the, the Asherah pole, burns it in the Kidron Valley. In verse 14, we see that he could have gone further. He could have gone further in removing the high places. But from what we've seen, something 
this is an incredible part of 1 Kings. Something unexpected has happened. Asa was born into one of the most wicked families. His heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. Now that surprises me. The God of evil just seems like he's got it all sewn up. Like each generation is bound to get worse than the last. That the influences in this life from your own family, from TV, from you know, phones, the internet, uh, you name it, you name it, seems to mean that the God of evil can't fail. How can he go wrong? Well, hold your horses, maybe there is a power. Maybe there is a power that is actually greater than your family, greater than the society, greater than Evan's head. Maybe there is a God who doesn't care what background you've had, what school you've been to. He can claim you and he can transform you. How else can you explain Asa bucking against all of his family's false gods? How can you explain it? There's no other way to explain it. So I wish my granddad, I wish he knew the God of the Bible. I wish he knew the one who can and does bring life out of the worst influences, the worst upbringings. I wonder if he knew the story of my, of, of his, of his, you know, of my parents, his own son and uh, my mum. You know, my mum was converted um, during rehab. My dad got converted while he was in the army. Had no no influences with prior influences with Christianity. Right under his nose, if he had have known God, there was proof that God's grace is unstoppable. It is free. It's unhindered. The God of evil does not have the last say in this life. See, history is not a foolproof. It's not a foolproof indicator of how things will turn out. But before we get too excited about this point, we've got to come back to it. Um, we see that Asa destroying every idol here. I think the rest of his life in this passage shows us that the problem is also deeper than we think. See, while Asa, he, he goes to town, he busts all the physical idols he can get his hands on, I think we still see here that there are idols in his heart. There are functional idols in his life that take place of God. So you wouldn't, you'd, you'd think that you might be forgiven, you know, if you, you think if you got rid of all the physical, you know, imagine if you ban TV, ban every influence, make everyone go to Christian school, do everything Christian, 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 that eventually um, they, nothing could go wrong, could it? Um, well, that, that's what's happened here. He, he, he's kind of banned all the false idols. And you think, well, Asa's got no problems here. Like everyone's now go, going to the one true temple. Everyone's going to the one true school. No bad influence. Everything should be right. But if you know what people are like, as John Calvin once famously said, I'm sure you've probably heard before, he says that our hearts are idol factories. That evil comes from within our hearts. I mean, you can put me in a perfect school, but I'll stuff it up because I'm there. Uh, and it's not just what Calvin says, this is what Jesus says from Mark 7. He says, Jesus says, it's what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. 
See, we've got a bigger problem than just outside influences. And while 1 Kings isn't that harsh on Asa, don't we see from verse 18 that while he doesn't worship or bow down to any physical idols, that he trusts his wealth and that he trusts political alliances more than God. We meet this guy, Basher, who comes out of nowhere in this story, uh, in this account, and uh, he threatens Asa. He's um, trying to take over his kingdom. And do we see Asa at this stage calling on the Lord? Now, he's got rid of the idols, but does he call on the Lord instead? Does he call for a prophet to give him direction like previous kings have done? Now, in verse 18, it seems that he takes back some of the silver and the gold that he'd previously put in the temple. You see that in verse 15? In verse 15, it seems he put silver, he's put silver and gold in the temple to honour the Lord, shows where his trust in the Lord is. But in verse 18, we see him taking it back and he, he thinks that he's, going to, he's more likely to be saved if he gives it to Ben-Hadad, son of Tabrimon. And now Tabrimon means Rimon is good. Rimon is good. And who's, who's Rimon? Well, Rimon was the false god of the Assyrians, the ones that they worshipped. And so we sort of see here, well, Asa, he won't bow down to this false god. He's probably cut down the idols to this, to this god and turfed it. But when push comes to shove, in reality, he thinks his strongest move, the thing that's going to protect him most, is if he pulls money out of God's temple and ships it off to this pagan king. To Ben Hadad. You see, the problem of idolatry and evil, it goes deeper than we might have thought. Our hearts are idol factories. Whatever it is that you trust the most, whatever it is that you love the most, want the most, put your hope in the most, that is your God. I mean, you can sit here for a few hours on Sunday morning, but. You know, you might have never bowed down to any physical idol in your life. You might think that stuff that is just crazy. What are you talking about? But whatever it is that's in your life that is non-negotiable, the thing or the activity that comes before Jesus in your life, it is your God. It is. And it's pretty depressing. It's pretty depressing and it's also pretty frightening given how much God hates it. Even one of the best kings that we come across in one kings, this is almost the cream of the crop. This is a guy who still, he still needs help. He still doesn't fully trust the Lord. In verse 19, Asa says to the king, to this pagan king, see, I'm sending you a gift of silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Now, that's not good, isn't it? The word for gift here is the, word, the, idea, is the, the idea of a bribe. You know, he's encouraging this guy to break his word. You know, all this kind of stuff's unbiblical to go against your word, offering bribes. It's not what the Lord's involved in. The Lord is faithful to his word. And so if we just left this sermon here in chapter 15, I think we'd still be scratching our heads going, is, is evil really winning? Are we meant to go through life with a sense that evil is just so pervasive, it's so hopeless? You know, we, we might have got rid of 
the physical idols. We might, you know, send our kids to all the right schools and give, you know, cut out all that right stuff, and that's fine. But how are we going to deal with our hearts? Well, as we come to think about Jesus, I think we see that the hope is also bigger than we think. It's also bigger than you think. Because Jesus, as we come to see him in the Gospels, he's the one who can deal with our heart, our heart idols. Um, he, he was the one who... It's interesting, I don't think there's many places where Jesus actually talks about... Um, none come to my mind where he actually talks against physical idols of the day. But in Luke 18, he does say stuff like this. He says to the rich man, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see what Jesus is, isn't he? He's, He's going to the heart of the problem. He goes to the heart of the issue. It's where our trust, where our love is. What do we trust and love? You know, our trust and love in money can be so strong that it, it seems almost impossible to trust God above it. Um, thankfully, Jesus in that chapter says what's impossible with man is not impossible with God. Um, so there, are hope, there is hope for the rich. And the very next chapter, I think it's deliberate, in chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel, we meet Zacchaeus, a rich tax collector, ticking all the bad box, all the, all the worst boxes. And yet he's a guy who repents, gives half of his possessions to the poor and pays back those he's cheated. As Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And so it's only with Jesus that we finally begin to see the one who can truly transform us, can truly save us from the inside out. In, in, uh, in King Asa, we get a glimpse of God's grace, of that awesome hope that evil is not king. But in Jesus, we get an even stronger hope, even bigger hope, a hope that can't, cannot be imagined. In Jesus, we see a grace that is unstoppable. No one would have thought out of all the people in the room or on the pathway that Zacchaeus, this rich, greedy tax man, would be transformed. No one saw that coming. But boom, there he was. He was. No one would have thought that Saul, the guy who was attacking and destroying the early church, would be not just saved, but would become the apostle, become, you know, Jesus' almost number one messenger the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. He try and tell Paul and Zacchaeus that the God of evil still reigns, as if evil will predictably win the day every single time. Now later on in Acts, we see Paul, uh, he's in chains because of Jesus. He used to chain people up for Jesus, but we see him towards the end of Acts, he's the one who's in chains for Jesus. Um, And he's trying to convince the king of the day that he needs to turn to Jesus in Acts 26. And this king is amazed. He says to Paul, he goes, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? You can hear the shock in the king's voice just from that one sentence. You know, what makes, you can imagine, what's a prisoner doing thinking he can convert the king of the day? 
Well, Paul knew from experience that Jesus is king. He can just do whatever he likes. If he wants to take you quick, he will take you quick. And nothing's going to stop him. So who would have thought that Asa, fully surrounded by unbelieving family, unbelieving, in an unbelieving culture, would just turn to the Lord. Just, just imagine that, just turning against your whole family, smashing all their idols, deposing your grandma, kicking her off the throne. God's grace is unstoppable. Evil might look like it is king, but Jesus is. He is the one who has the last word. Now finally, as we come to a close, maybe you've been challenged today. Maybe you've been looking down your nose at these people in the Old Testament or you know, people from other cultures who bow down, they have these little idols. I was, I was in Western Sydney before I came here and people would have them on their front doorstep and I think you could just so knock them off and um, you know, like, and you still think, you know, I'm running away with your God. Like, what's, how's your God actually up? Yeah, you can make fun of it. Um, but maybe you're seeing as we come to Jesus that it's, it's not as funny. Maybe you might see that you've got something in your life that takes precedence over Jesus. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's pleasure. Um, maybe it's family like it could have been for King Asa and those before him. Could you imagine all the family history, the pressure to stick with their false gods? Everyone's doing it. Mum and dad are doing it. You know, Surely God's gonna, God won't care. I've just got to do, obey my parents at least. Maybe for you it's none of those things. Maybe for you at the moment you're going through the ringer and you think that evil and disaster is really king in your life. That there's nothing turning back what's going on in your life. Maybe you're paralysed by the idea that no one can stop it, no one can handle it. That even if God wanted to do something, well, there's nothing he could do about it. There's no way he could bring good out of that situation. Even God has got his limits. There's just too much. The world, the family, it's just too far gone. The Lord can't do anything about it. But finally, don't we see from this strange book of Kings that it's not true? That finally, that if you are a Christian, you are in a winning battle. You're in a winning battle. That as real as the evil and the mess of this life is, that we don't need to deny that, that none of it can stop the Lord from bringing good out of it. Time and time again, we meet people in the Bible and in real life we make us scratch our heads, even ourselves, and go, look, how did they become a Christian? How did I become a Christian? Asa, by all rights, he, he should be taking evil to the next level, like most of the other kings after him. He should be ramping it up. But God's grace is unstoppable. At one point in the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, when it's talking about the attributes of God, um, it's, it's not very... Um, it's just dot point, dunk, dunk, dunk. and it just got this one of these little dot points is that says that God is most free, and then this moves on to something else. God is most free, and I think that's what we see in God's grace and in God's power. That God is not in a battle with evil, as if His hands are tied, as if He can't undo 
previous generations of evil in your life or in those around you. As if God can only work with what seems possible and what seems likely. His grace is unstoppable. Just as he created the world out of nothing, he can save people out of darkness. You see, brothers and sisters, don't give up. Don't give up praying. Don't give up trying to point people to Jesus. You're in a winning battle. You can't lose with him. So don't lose hope. Uh, Thelonious Monk, um, some jazz musician, I've got a record, don't think I've ever listened to it, um, uh, wouldn't know if he's good or not, he probably is, um, it all sounds the same to me. Uh, one day I'll get into it. Um, but a cool story about him I once heard was that he went to prison um, for a friend. He took the blame for a crime he didn't commit. I don't think it was because he was a particularly righteous guy or moral or whatever like that, but he just knew, the reason he did it is because he knew his friend just would not survive prison. Um, and so he went for him. And the amazing news of Jesus is that uh, he's the king who knows how dark our lives have been. He knows how, how messed up our heritage uh, is that he came and gave up his life for us. As 1 Peter 1.18 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers. I think my dad did a pretty good job, but um, look, there's a, lot that, there's a lot that is not good that has been handed down. You weren't redeemed by, by silver or gold, or any of those things, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So brothers and sisters, don't lose hope. You are in a winning battle. Listen to 1 Kings. See how the Lord brought life out of darkness. Look to the cross as the ultimate example, as the ultimate proof that his grace is unstoppable. Let's pray. Father, um, I don't know about everyone in this room, but I know myself at the moment just feel, um, yeah, like I doubt your power. Um, and yet, Father, I know from your word, um, know from the gospel, and I do know from, from just decades of your faithfulness that um, there is nothing to doubt that you are not in a battle with evil, um, that you are king, you remain king, you will be king, and you will be seen to be king, and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that your son is Lord. Father, please fill us, uh, lead us to, to bow before him before he comes, and lead us to find hope into him while we wait for him to return. Amen.